0: Good singing, you may be seated. Well, good singing and Happy New Year. Young people, I cannot give you a badge or a sticker or a prize for having to listen to pastor preach twice in a week, but I'm sure you'll be better for it. Take your Bibles tonight and turn to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to ask this question, how many in here have gone through or at least started, not finished, but started the study of Romans with me one-on-one. Raise your hand real high. I couldn't remember. One, two, three, four. Zach is five, and I know before that there was six, seven, and eight. So I've gone through this book eight times with individuals within our church. The book of Romans is the best book in all of the Bible. Now, I know some of you have your own favorite books, but the book of Romans, it's God's treatise on salvation. It tells us everything about what we get and what we've got when we have salvation, when we have Jesus Christ as our Savior. So what we're going to do over the next 16 Wednesday nights is study chapter by chapter through the book of Romans. So you too can raise your hand and say, I did a study with you on that. Now, what you won't get in this, though I probably will when we get to some of the more difficult chapters, I probably will let you ask questions because the best way to learn is to ask a question and sometimes I'll ask you questions. And so what we're going to do from week to week on the Wednesday night is you're going to need to be ready when you come in here. And what that means is next Wednesday morning, I will post maybe on Tuesday night, I will post in the church app. If you have the church app or the church messaging, I will post some questions that I'm going to ask for you on that Wednesday night. We're going to treat these Wednesday nights as a, basically like an academic setting where we're going to sit and we're going to learn. Now, I am a pastor and I'm a preacher, so I'm always going to default into doing some preaching, all right? Uh, But you're going to do some learning because the book of Romans, if you can master it, you can go out in the world and share your faith and never be ashamed of your faith ever again. That's what the book of Romans does for you. Well, let's read a verse tonight to jump into our teaching this evening. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse number 16, the Bible says, For I am not ashamed of what? The gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. Father, help us as we now come to the Word of God. Help us as we take just these 30 minutes to study that we might learn the Bible. It is our only source of hope in this wicked, fallen world. It is the only message that You've given to us to know Your mind. This wonderful letter written by the Apostle Paul, put here before every other letter to any other church, is given to us so that we might learn. Help us, I pray tonight, to understand it. I pray that you would guard and collect my thoughts. Lord, you know I love this book, so there's many things I could say, but there's only a few things I should say in a preaching and teaching setting like this. Help us to make sense of a masterful argument for the gospel. Bless us, I pray, in this hour, in Jesus' name, Amen. What is the book of Romans to you? What is it? You say, "Well, you just told me." But what is the book of Romans to you? Book of God's grace, book of God's grace. great Keith, wonderful. Even you, the kids, you can answer. Teenagers, you're allowed to answer. Ethan's wanting to answer. What is the book of Romans? Yeah, it's a book that God wrote to us. It's one of the 65 other books that God wrote, but yes. Why did Paul write the letter? Does anybody know? Just thinking of the 16 chapters that are in the book, why did he write it? I've read the thesis statement from Romans tonight. Maybe we could look there and draw some helps. I told you I'm going to engage you. This is very uncomfortable for some of you, I can see. You don't have to raise your hand, Ethan, but thank you. Go ahead. It's a warning and a guide. Good. To reach the Gentiles? Gentiles, I would say to share what salvation is, but yes, they wouldn't have known what it is. Here's what I think Romans is in the best definition that I can come up with. The answer is that God wanted a letter written fully to us explaining what he gave us. There's no other letter in the New Testament that breaks down salvation in all of its parts, the gospel, in every single bit of its parts. We're going to talk about things like justification and imputation, not amputation, but imputation over the coming weeks. We're going to talk about sanctification. We're going to talk about what is the story with Israel today and what happened to them. There's all kinds of truth that is revealed to us in the book of Romans and all of it, every single single bit touches the salvation that we have received. Romans is a seven-part argument from the mind of God through the pen of Paul for the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ. The letter opens with the principal subject. That's what we're going to deal with tonight, the gospel. In chapters 1, or the end of chapter 1, beginning in verse number 18, And all the way through chapter 2, Paul moves on to deal with the problem of sin. In chapters 3, 4, and 5, he gives to us the process of salvation. And then in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he explains the progress or the progression of what sanctified living actually looks like. The letter in chapter 9 seemingly changes in its tenor and in its approach to deal with the present state of Israel. What are we to make of Israel? And Paul says... Much, especially when we get to chapter 11, but not much in chapters 9 and 10. And so it's a bit confusing, but we can take our time and understand what the author is giving to us. The letter transitions back to the church as a whole in chapters 12 through 15. Presenting to the believers our purposeful service back to Jesus Christ. That's why chapter 12 seems like it should plug and play right after chapter number 8. Again, if you will come on Wednesday coming out of the work week tired and exhausted and frustrated and distracted. If you will come in here and sit down and think that this Wednesday night is at least 30 minutes of good Because you're going to learn a book of the Bible and you're going to go home week after week and say, I know what that chapter is talking about. What I read for us this evening is the thesis statement of the book. Everything that is in this letter is contained in this one verse. It is about Jesus Christ, the salvation that he provides, and the results that come from receiving that good news. Paul begins the letter introducing us to the principle or the chief subject, and that is faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel. The subject can be digested into three sections then of these first 17 verses, and it begins number one in our outlines, and I encourage you to get your outlines out and write on them. It begins with the believer's foundation. Read with me the first seven verses. You don't need to read out loud. You can just read along as I read them. The Bible says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God Are ye also the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? And you go, (gasps) that is one sentence. Every guy that has sat in my office or sat in with me studying the book of Romans, (coughs) excuse me, hears me say this. When you read the Bible... Study it by the sentence. And I am not a grammarian, or or I'm not very good at grammar and, and dissecting and diagramming. But if you will read the Bible by sentence, you will begin to capture the thoughts that God wants you to have as they're collected together. Now, I will tell you this is a long sentence. I cannot imagine my English teacher or a professor in college saying, please diagram this for me. I don't know how many direct objects or predicate nominatives there are. I have no idea of all of those things. But simply to say, this sentence tells us that there is a foundation that we have collectively. As believers in Jesus Christ, there's something we have to hold on to. There's something that moves us. There's something that motivates us. Paul starts by introducing to us the Savior. There is no indication in the book of Romans that this letter is addressed to the unbeliever. Now, before you gasp and say, wait a second, I used the Romans road to lead people to Jesus. That's right. But the letter was written to believers. It was not written to unbelievers. It was written to the believers who had already received this like precious faith. The Romans who are saints in verse number seven. He's writing it to them so that they might begin to grasp actually what they have in Jesus Christ. This is not to say that an unbeliever reading Romans cannot grasp the concept and accept Jesus Christ. Many of us have through the years in reading and understanding Romans. It is simply to say that Paul begins the letter with the intended audience being believers. As such, he lays out the foundation for the believer, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. It is seen first, letter A, in our ministry to him. In verses 1 and 2, we find Paul is talking about a ministry that he has, something that he wants to do for someone else. Salvation is important, and the ministry involves service. The believer owes his life to Jesus Christ, Paul is telling us in verse number 1. Paul's life itself demonstrated this, and he highlights two keys to our ministry success. Do you want to know, because of the salvation you have, how you can be successful? Here it is in verse number 1. Right off the the gun, right as soon as they say go, he says here's what what you need or what it takes to be successful. He tells us it is both service and separation. You want to be successful in Christ? You have this salvation. You need to serve Him and you need to be separated unto Him. The believer owes his life to Christ. Paul demonstrates this with with his own life. He says in verse number one, Paul, a servant of Jesus. Paul understood that he was but a servant. By the way, Christian, you do well to learn that you are but a servant. Sometimes we walk around telling everybody we're saints, and we ought to remind ourselves that in this life we are but servants of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we're not saints. But we do well to keep before us that we are servants. The word servant here is doulos. It means a slave. One, is who in per, one who is in permanent relation of servitude to another. The one who is the slave's will being altogether consumed in and by the will of another. That's what he calls himself right out of the gate. God owns it all, and Paul reminds himself and the reader that this is the key to success in ministry throughout all of your Christian life. If Paul could merely be a servant of Jesus Christ, then you and I, too, can be merely servants of Jesus Christ. That's the key to a successful ministry foundation. He had been called to serve. The word called here literally means welcomed or invited God invites you and I to serve. He invited Paul to serve. For Paul, he was invited to an apostleship. For you and I, it is according to our spiritual gifting that we are called. Whatever the invitation, whatever the opportunity that God has set before us, we know that we are to equally get engaged in serving in that ministry. Do you know how you solve service problems in a church? Just remind people that God is inviting you to it. Who says no to God? You know, if I want to have a solid foundation in this life, then I'm going to have to understand that I'm here to serve. Jesus Christ did not come to minister but to be ministered unto, but to minister. The second aspect that he puts here and I put in your notes is separation. Paul was separated unto the good news of God. The gospel of God, he says. What was that good news? And, of course, Jesus Christ is that good news. He was promised by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, he says in the parenthetical statement. I often say this when I'm teaching Romans. The best parenthetical statements come in this book. Parentheses are additions to the main thought. And some of the parentheses that we're going to see throughout the book of Romans are main thoughts all by themselves. Here he says, by the way, the good news of God, it was promised. It was promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul uses a specific word for the word separated here. The word separated was the name of a particular sect of Pharisees before his conversion. Paul was a member of that sect. They were separated. They were Pharisees of the Pharisees. When he talks to the Corinthians, Paul calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What he's saying is, I stood out. I was different in my religious zeal. And what he's saying here is, when it comes to the gospel of God, I stand out. I'm different. They were of Gamaliel in Paul's day. In fact, to King Agrippa in Acts 26... Paul calls it a straight sect of Pharisees. In other words, it was very zealous in their dealings. That tells us something. Separation means being different, apart from, not like. If we are separated unto the gospel of God, that means we are separated from the sins of this world. Ministry is not recognition. Ministry is not status. Ministry is not even accomplishment. Ministry is is this. Are you a servant who is separated? That's how you measure success. That's the foundation for the believer does your life show signs of clear separation from the old sinful world? If you can sit in a preaching service and be distracted, if you can be in a service and not care about the things of God, if you can come to church and kind of have a laissez-faire attitude towards it, and you go out on the Thursday or the Monday after the service, and you just live like the devil, may I submit to you, you're not really serving and you're not really separated. You don't have a good foundation. You're off. Our foundation begins with service and separation and ministry to Christ, which grows as we understand, let her be, the majesty of Christ. When he writes these verses, he's not just writing isolated ideas. They're all building ideas. They all come one upon the other. The ministry is there because we understand the majesty. We understand who Jesus is. We understand who God is. These two verses explain Christ in his majestic nature. Oh, by the way, it is both human and divine. In verse number 3, he gives us the royal humanity. He, he says this in verse 3, Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, or in the fashion of the flesh. Jesus is, of course, the seed of David. His mother was in the royal line. Dr. Luke records for us the lineage of Mary, while Matthew records the lineage of Joseph. Both of them are through David, but Mary's line traces all the way back to the throne itself. Christ's majesty is, of course, royal in his human nature, but it's also righteous in its divinity. Paul notes first that the majesty of Christ's righteous divinity is made with a powerful statement. He's declared to be the Son of God with power. What kind of power? Go to the very end of that verse, and it's by the resurrection from the dead. There is no more definitive statement of power than conquering death. Oh, there's a lot of people in the Bible that were raised from the dead by a prophet at the Word of God or by Jesus, the living Word of God, but there was not one person in the Bible that raised himself from the dead. Jesus did. That is majestic, that is power, that is awe-inspiring. And so we understand it is a powerful statement, but it is also with a purposeful spirit. He said, according to the spirit of what in verse number four? Holiness. According to the spirit of holiness. The word holiness here is suni. I know you all know that word, you use it all the time, right? Hagio sunos would be the idea of being sanctified or in the process of sanctity occurring in your life. Hagio suni has the idea of completely sanctified, completely separate, completely holy. In other words, there's nothing that can be done to improve upon what you already are. He says it was always according to the spirit of his separated nature. He was divine. Oh, he was of David, but he was certainly divine. Those that would tell you that Christ was just a man and that the Spirit of God came upon him, they are liars and they don't know the Bible. And what Paul does as soon as he starts a letter is he starts to set forward some really key basic facts. He said, look, you've got to have a good foundation. You have to know why you want to serve God. Ministry is important. And you have to understand why you want to worship God. Majesty is important. Letters C, we find it's the mystery of Christ that is part of our foundation. So, why would Jesus come? Well, Paul addresses that. Why would God care to save us? That is an essential question of salvation, isn't it? And to be completely fair, it's a mystery. If you ever meet someone and says, I can tell you why God came, we can give you Bible reasons that he reveals as to why he came, but we can't really find the motivation behind it. It's only in his mind. It is a mystery to us. And that's what Paul addresses when he gets down to verse number five. He says, by whom we have received grace and apostleship. He can't explain where that grace came from. He can't explain what that grace is fully about. And he will, throughout the chapters, begin to unravel some of that grace so that we can understand it. But boy, it is a mystery. And by the way, it is a sublime mystery. It is a rejoicing that you don't know it all. Anytime you get puffed up and think you know it all, just remember you don't know it all. Come back to Romans and remember it's just a mystery. The mystery of Christ is of God's grace. Grace means a a favor done with no possibility of return or repayment. It is unearned and unmerited favor. We do not know why God chose to save us other than he wanted to save us. We do not know why he equips us for ministry, but he equips us for ministry. These mysteries will not be solved until we reach heaven. But they are still foundational motivators in our Christian life. And that's why Paul starts with them. One thing we do know is that his grace was offered so that he might be glorified. Which is the second part of the mystery. It is for God's glory. You and I are designed to be to the praise and glory of Almighty God. Verses 5, 6, and 7 unfold this in the sense of he's saying to us in the middle of verse 5, he says, for obedience to the faith among all nations. You were saved so that you can demonstrate your obedience before the eyes of all men. That's what he says at the end of verse 5. Every church that is meeting tonight, every church body that meets on Sunday, every believer in Jesus Christ, wherever they go on this planet Earth, they, before the eyes of the lost world, are evidence of a God and of a Savior. Tell me the next time you choose to go into wanton sin that you are being a good reflection of a Savior. Well, how can I demonstrate who God is Through obedience, by doing what he says. The grace is given to us so that we might obey him through faith in whatever place we find ourselves. We are literally called by the name of Jesus Christ, he tells us in these verses. Thus, we represent Jesus Christ everywhere we go. Paul's final note on this is actually to the Roman church in particular. And by the way, we can draw hope from it, but verse 7 is a direct quote to them. If, if we look at Romans, when you get to chapter 16, and I call it in my notes, the salutations, the so longs, right? You can tell everything is an S in my understanding of Romans. But when we get to that, those are some areas where we can draw principles, but they're not directly written to us. Verse 7 is the only other verse really that applies like that until you get to chapter 16. Because he's dealing directly here with the Romans. He said, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course God wants us to have those things as well. But what he's saying to them is, you, Roman church, are for God's glory. He would be saying the same thing had he written this letter to Bluegrass. Ministry, majesty, and mystery. They're the foundations to what makes possible, number two in our outlines, the Beloved's Fellowship. He pivots, and and we'll look at these through the weeks and the months as we go through the book of Romans. I love a lot of the pivot points. A lot of the chapters actually begin with pivot words. However, therefore, because... Or seeing these things. Paul is going to use words like that that are transitional so that he carries the thought into the next chapter so that we can understand and grasp the totality. That's the problem for most Christians. We'll read Romans and we read it as one verse at a time or one chapter. You have to read it as a book. I I did not sit down with my boys years ago and start reading through the Chronicles of Narnia and say, just remember each chapter. No, we got the whole concept of the book. And that's what Romans is. It's a book carrying a message in its totality to us. So he comes in in verse number 8, and he says, first, all right, let's get down to business. That's what he says. And he starts to talk about what it means to be together as a church body. All of us who have this common faith, this gospel, the subject that he's dealing with, what does it do in us? What does it do for us? The beloved's fellowship is what we find in verse 8. First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Now that's one sentence. New thought begins in verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end or for the purpose that you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and of me. In other words, you see communion, you see fellowship here. Verse 13, now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I wanted, I purposed to come unto you, but was let or prevented from doing so, let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among others. Gentiles. Paul writes to all that are in Rome, not merely the Jews, but all. This seems obvious to us 2,000 years later, but the writing of this letter of Paul would routinely start his gospel outreach in a Jewish synagogue, right? He would go in and he would start with the Jews, And then the Jews would reject him and he would go to the Gentiles or to the Greeks or the barbarians or Scythians, whatever name Paul would use for the group of people he was dealing with at that time. What we find is Paul here in this passage is bringing together Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and barbarians, wise and unwise, all of them in the faith of Jesus Christ united. And that unity created fellowship. For the fellowship to thrive, there are three requirements. First, there is commitment, letter A. I'm going to have to hustle. The guys, by the way, that study with me, it usually goes about an hour and 15 minutes. We will not go that long, I promise, I think, today. All right, I promise. We got the kids in here. Just start yawning and make one of them squeal and I'll hush. It's got to start with commitment in verse 8. Paul was thankful for their faith and its impact on the world. By the way, at this time, the civilized world stretched nearly 6,000 miles from Britannia, the island of Great Britain, to the Himalayan mountains. The Roman Empire made possible the rapid movement of the gospel. True believers literally could go anywhere living and sharing their faith. It is no different than today. These believers in Rome did that. There isn't much fellowship, however, when no one wants to obey God. And that's what he says. Your faith is spoken of because you want to obey God. Because you have claimed the faith and lived the faith. These Romans had trusted in Christ and wanted to both share and show their faith to the world at large. They were glad for what they had. That's why verse 16 is so important. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. Why? The Romans weren't ashamed of it. A church that wants to impact the world, that's the result of a truly committed faith. Letter B, in verses 9 through 12, there is communion. The most intimate that brothers and sisters in Christ can be is in prayer one with another. That's why on Wednesday night we do take the time to pray. Oh, we could get up here and wax eloquent from the Word of God, but it's not more important at certain seasons than sitting down and praying one with another and seeing how each one bears their soul before Almighty God. There's a sweet assurance and rest that comes from knowing that others are praying for you when they actually pray with you. Paul was earnest in his spirit in these verses 9 through 12, not his flesh, to be with them, to be a blessing to them as they could be a blessing to him. He never ceased to make mention of this church in his prayers, he notes, His chief request is, I want to be with you. Can I suggest to you, if you don't want to be at church, and I realize I'm preaching to the Wednesday night crowd, but if you don't want to be at church, there's a problem with you. I've many times met people, especially since pastoring here in in central Kentucky, that say, I can just worship God at home. No, you can't. You can do a portion of worship to God at home by yourself, But you can't get the fullness of what God designed within the church. So, the foundation for the believer leads to the beloved, those who are united in fellowship with each other, and it leads to communion with God. Communion is always found in a longing to be with one another. If you're a Christian, you should long to be around other Christians. Let her see there is comfort. Being around earnest and faithful servants of God is encouraging, Paul tells us in verse 13, and it establishes the shared faith that we have in Christ. Paul had heard of their faith and he wanted to be part of their faith to establish or deepen it. Did you realize that when you come together in church, you challenge one another and you deepen each other's faith? It's why you come together. Oh, I thought I came to just hear you yell at us. No. Hopefully what I'm saying in the preaching challenges you to think so that it generates conversations with each other. That's the objective. That's the goal. We're not just a club that comes and hears a guy speak for 45 minutes. You can do that at a comedy club. You'll get nothing out of it. You come to church so that you can be in communion and comfort or encourage one another. Later in the book of Romans, in chapter 12, he's going to expand upon this idea of using our spiritual gifts with and towards each other within the church. But he tells them here is that I want to bless you with a spiritual gift. What is that spiritual gift? For Paul, it was an apostleship. For me, it's preaching or pastoring. The principal subject of salvation in Jesus Christ is how Romans begins. The believer's foundation creates the beloved's fellowship, which is grounded, number three, upon the basics of our faith. Verses 15, 16, and 17 bring us to the basics of our faith. Well, what are the basics of what we believe? Well, it's the good news. Here are the three basics. Letter A, salvation must be preached. Well... I think I'm just going to live out my salvation and hope everybody notices it. I mean, I think they'll notice that I go to church. they say, well, they don't know if you're going to the Elks Club or if you're going to the bowling alley or if you're going to church. Well, I mean, they know. Well, the basics of our faith is that your faith is shared. Don't believe me? Here's what he says in verse 15. So as much as in me is... I am ready to preach. You say, well, he's Paul. Of course he is. The word preach here is just herald or proclaim. I'm ready to declare the gospel to you that are in Rome also. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For therein, in that gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Preaching is simply heralding God's truth. By the way, it takes humility and honesty, Paul says in this passage. He said, I don't care who I preach to, I will preach to anyone. He's already told us in verse 14, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. He is literally saying there, I'm indebted to the most logical thinking people, the Stoics of the world, and to those crazy Germanic barbarians that live up in Germania, that don't know anything and live half naked. That's what he says in this verse. If you want to get deep into the context, that's what he's talking about. And all the kids just smiled because pastor said naked. Sorry about that. Man, when does BAC start back up? I'm kidding. He's not talking about Jews and Greeks anymore. Now he's talking about those who are logical and those who are irrational. He then goes on and says to the wise and the unwise. He says, I don't care who they are. I'll preach to anybody. Paul was ready to preach the gospel. Are you? Anyone can be a preacher if you're just humble and honest. It is not solely the pastor's or the deacon's or the life stage director's duty to herald the truth. It is everyone's responsibility. Never present in salvation and in the presentation of salvation is a haughty spirit. We never present it as, look, you're going to want what I have. You might say to them, I have something that you do want, but you do it with humility. You're not better than anyone. You are, in fact, Paul says, a debtor to everyone. The key is found in the readiness to preach. Paul was eager, enthusiastic, emboldened to share faith in Jesus Christ. We should share in that basic reality as well. Everyone in the Gospels and in the book of Acts that received Jesus Christ as their Savior was immediately out sharing what happened to them. Why aren't we? Letter B, salvation is principled. In verse 16, Paul knew this basic principle. No one is ever ashamed of being alive. Now, there's people that might say because they've cheated death, I don't deserve to be alive. But no one's ashamed of being alive. Paul's primary motivation was the gospel. He believed it so much that it moved him to live a life different for God. He knew that salvation was so simple and free that the Jew and the Greek alike, the religious and the irreligious alike, could confidently believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. There was no doubt in his mind. He had witnessed it many times throughout his earthly ministry. He had gotten saved and called into the ministry, Paul, likely in about 35 A.D. He's writing Romans in A.D. 60. He's 25 years into faithful Christian service. He knows it works problem for many Christians today is they've never shared their faith, and so the many times they're just ashamed of their faith. You and I, friends, are not living on blind chance to get to heaven. We're living on informed belief, Paul says. Can I tell you a secret? I believe that oxygen keeps me alive. <gasps> I could keep doing that if you want me to. I believe gravity holds me to the earth. See? It does it every time. I've never done that throughout my whole life and just kept floating on out out into the ether. I believe these things that I can't see and many times I can't explain, but they're provably true, just like Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. I'm not ashamed of it. And if you're ashamed of it, it's because you don't understand it. And some would stop and say, well, if I don't understand it, then maybe I didn't get it. Friends, a five-year-old, many of our five-year-olds, while I was praying tonight, three of the little kids said, Pastor, I need to get baptized. And I ask them every time, well, why? And their faces usually get slightly perplexed, like, I thought you'd be cool with that. And their answer is, because I asked Jesus to save me. Fist bump, let's do it. Let's talk to mom and dad. A child can understand it, but the depth of what Paul's going to give us in Romans takes us far past the kiddie pool. And that's what he's saying is if you're starting out just ashamed of your faith, you're going to have a hard time with everything that comes after this. Don't be ashamed of it. Salvation is principled. Letter C, salvation is proven. It's proven. In verse 17, he says, For therein, for therein what? For in that gospel, in that salvation, in that is the righteousness or the right actions of God revealed. How do you prove you're saved? Demonstrate that you know the righteousness of God. Has the righteousness of God been revealed to you? Then stop cussing. Stop watching dirty movies. Stop listening to the music you shouldn't listen to. Stop drinking, stop smoking, stop doing all the things that you know are wrong. Stop coveting, stop lying, stop being arrogant. It really isn't that hard to prove your salvation until you can't prove your salvation. Salvation reveals to us, Paul says, God's righteousness and our sinfulness. God has always revealed his righteousness, beginning with Adam in the garden. Adam, by faith, remained sinless until he chose to believe himself rather than God. Once Adam lacked faith in God's word, he died. Now, thankfully, we're on the latter half of the faith. That was the beginning of faith. We're on the latter half of faith where if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it doesn't just save us from one sin, it saves us from all sins. Adam didn't have that privilege. We do. And he's going to explain that literally in this book. The just, Paul says, always live by faith in what God has chosen to reveal about himself. Jesus Christ, he's going to explain to us, is the full manifestation of that revelation. So today we live by the same faith as Adam and Noah and Abraham, and David, and Paul. The faith is in the revelation that God has given to us. So as we close, only five and a half minutes late, Paul introduces in these first 17 verses the principal subject of the letter. From here on in the book, Paul will begin to discuss in much greater detail all the particulars of what the gospel actually means for us. We'll start next week if you want to do some reading, beginning in verse 18 through the end of chapter 2. Come next week realizing the problem of sin. There's no point in salvation if you don't understand there's a problem with sin. And so he starts in verse 18 with the problem of sin. And I have to pause because I want to keep teaching, and I won't. Let's close tonight in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you for what it teaches us, what it tells us. I pray that we would as a church body, especially those on a Wednesday night, begin to earnestly grasp these truths, hold on to them, make them a part of how we think and who we are. Tonight, Lord, as we depart, if we're able to give to the offering, I pray that we can. Pray that we would help Russell and Swanee. Help us this week to take the gospel out into the world. Jesus Christ is our one foundation. And oh, what a foundation he is. We can build our lives upon him. Paul has just told us that. He is the cause for our fellowship. And he is the reason for our faith. Bless us, I pray, as we depart. In Jesus' name, amen.